Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Rita Dove joins us. The former U.S. Poet Laureate and Pulitzer Prize winner has a new book of poetry, her first in 12 years, where she reflects on our changing nation and reveals that she has multiple sclerosis. Then Larry Elder was blasted recently by his fellow Republicans for derogatory remarks he made about women. But the talk radio host and Trump champion, who says the minimum wage in California should be zero, remains best positioned to be the state's next governor if voters approve the recall. We learn more next on Forum, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Rita Dove, winner of a Pulitzer Prize for Poetry and the nation's first Black Poet Laureate, has returned with a new collection of poems titled Playlist for the Apocalypse. It's Dove's first book in 12 years, where she reveals having multiple sclerosis and reflects on our chaotic and complex nation. Rita Dove, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your, your new book of poetry. Well, thank you. It's been a a long time coming, but I'm glad that it's finally here. Well, and so are we. And I'm actually wondering if you if you could start with a reading for us um, of your poem, Family Reunion, and feel free if there's anything you'd like to say about it beforehand or or to just dive right in. Well, uh, this poem is really based on pre-pandemic times when we did all of us used to gather for family reunions. And uh, my family's reunions always seem to revolve around the barbecue pit. So um, that's what this is about. It also is a little bit about um, really the way in which families, uh, particularly African-American families, uh, have migrated north and yet still um, kept some of their Southern heritage intact. Uh, Yes. Family reunion. 30 seconds into the barbecue, my Cleveland cousins have everyone speaking Southern, broadened vowels and dropped consonants, whoops and caws. It's more osmosis than magic, a sliding thrall back to a time when working the tire factories meant entire neighborhoods coming up from Georgia or Tennessee, accents helplessly intact while their children, inflections flattened to match the field they thought they were playing on, knew without asking when it was safe to roll out a drawl. 
just as it's understood potluck means resurrecting the food we've abandoned along the way for the sake of sleeker thighs. I look over the yard to the porch with its battalion of aunts, the wavering ranks of uncles at the grill. Everywhere else, hordes of progeny are swirling and my cousins yakking on as if they were waist deep in quicksand, but like the books recommend, aren't moving until someone hauls them free. Who are all these children? Who had them and with whom? Through the general coffee tones, the shamed genetics cut a creamy swath. Cherokees burnt umber transposed onto generous lips. A glance flares gray above the crushed nose we label anonymous African. It's all here, the beautiful geometry of Mendel's peas and their grim logic. And though we remain clearly divided on the merits of okra, there's still time to demolish the cheese grits and tear into slow-cooked ribs so tender we agree they're worth the extra pound or two our menfolk swear will always bring them home. Pity the poor soul who lives a life without butter. Those pinched knees and tennis shoulders and hatchety smiles. <laughs> Rita Dove, <laughs> the nation's former poet laureate reading her poem, Family Reunion. It, it so made me think about family gatherings, Rita Dove. And then at the same time, too, as you were saying just before you read it, how we haven't really been able to do anything like that during the pandemic and, you know, made me reflect on just how how the pandemic has felt in many ways very apocalyptic, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> with, <laughs> yeah. with all of its incredible changes. Um, and then, of course, recently now we have wildfires and the chaos in Afghanistan and so on. And it really does feel like we need a playlist for, for these times. And that poem was so much like that. I do wonder, though, about your title playlist for the apocalypse. Like, how do you define apocalypse? Is it as sort of destructive as I think of it? Well, you know, I do think of it, Mina, as, as both as destructive as you imagine it, but also something that is uh, a resurrection. Because I believe mm -hmm. the, the original word apocalypse uh, could also stand for a revelation. That revelation may be dire, uh, and it also may be an indication of the ways in which we've gone wrong and, and, and the ways in which you can rebirth, you know, can bear yourself again into a new future. So I think that it's a double-edged kind of a sword. If we're going to think of a blazing sword over our heads, then it's a, it's a sword that's also a warning. Um, and, and the playlist part, as you so rightly um, depicted it, is meant uh, to say that these poems are hopefully going to accompany their readers through whatever kinds of apocalypse dire situations or uh, revelations that they are going to have. Yes, and we're having so many of them now. You know, I was struck by something you said in an interview where during this time, people would come to you and say, you know, write a poem that's uplifting or recommend a poem that's uplifting. And it would frustrate you sometimes. I'm wondering why. 
Well, you know, I think people expect that a poet or any artist is going to cheer them up. It's like a court <laughs> gesture, almost mm. make us happy. Now, what makes me happy is when I see someone realizing their full potential, even going beyond what they dreamed happening to them, which means that sometimes the saddest or the most disturbing subject, if done well, if painted well, if, you know, that, that, that brightens me because then I see what the human spirit is capable of. Uh, so to, to say, you know, write an uplifting poem puts a kind of lid on that. It says it has to be bright and cheery. And I'm saying, no, it just has to be really good. <laughs> you know, and if it's good, it's <laughs> going to lift this up. They usually don't mean that when someone asks for an uplifting poem, they want, a, a, you know, they want a, a cheer. And right. I say, no, no, let's, let's look at things as they are. And let's, let's, let's talk about how we really feel. And if the other, if the reader connects with that feeling, then they don't feel alone. And that is uplifting. I, I love that description because you really do strike that balance in your poems. Some are some are hard and, and dark. Others are funny and and there's a softness to them as well. And many are all of these things all at once. And um, I really felt that a lot when I read your poem titled Pedestrian Crossing Charlottesville. And I was wondering if you could read that one for us. I'd be happy to. This poem actually uh, came pretty much in a rush to me. And that's unusual. I usually work for quite a long time on, on poems. And I love that, that work as I try to get the exact word. But this one, for some reason, I think it had been building up in me for some time. As you know, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Charlottesville has become a uh, household word mm. uh, in recent history. And every day, uh, my daily chores and whatever would take me by the statues that have precipitated uh, these tragedies that had happened here. And um, this is the poem that came out of that. Pedestrian Crossing, Charlottesville. A gaggle of girls giggle over the bricks leading off Court Square. We break dutifully and wait. But there's at least 20 of these knob-kneed creatures, blonde and curly, still at an age that thinks impudence is cute. Look how they dart and dither, changing flanks as they lurch along, golden goblets of infuriating foolishness or pure joy, depending on one's disposition. At the moment, minds sour. This is taking far too long. Don't they have minders? Just behind my shoulder in the city park, the Southern general still stands, stonewalling us all. When I was their age, I judged Goldilocks nothing more than a pint-sized criminal who flounced into others' lives, then assumed their clemency. Unfair, I know, my aggression to lump them into a gaggle, silly geese, when all they're guilty of is being young so far. Well, um, it, it's really interesting how you sort of so lightly allude to what you say made Charlottesville a house 
hold name. And I do wonder what it's like to write a poem about Charlottesville now, the place where you live, given the recent history, as you put it. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It took me a while uh, to write that poem, uh, you know, after recent history, after the, the horrible things that happened here. I was aware that they could happen. I think that anyone who is, uh, who, who has had experience, I guess I would say who's been marginalized, who knows what that is like, knows that, that, that all of these aggressions, microaggressions, um, uh, fears and, and, and hatreds are simmering just under the surface practically anywhere you go in the United States. That it happened in Charlottesville uh, was just one instance of that. And we see this happening all over and with Black Lives Matter with all sorts of things that happened. So that it happened here, uh, I think was uh, luck of the draw perhaps. Uh, I don't think Charlottesville is any worse or, or for that matter, any better than many towns, uh, but uh, it, it happened here. And it, it, um, it was difficult to write about. I wanted to write about the fact that, that there is a, an innocence that one can have, a luxury of innocence, I guess, that these young girls have because they are young, because it hasn't hit them yet. Now, what happens when they realize uh, or become aware of the world around them, how they decide to grapple with that reality will determine whether they are indeed, you know, <laughs> on the right side of, uh, of things or not. Hence those last two words so far. So far, yes, it says so much. Rita Dove, her new book of poetry playlist for the apocalypse is her first in 12 years. She's former U.S. Poet Laureate, Pulitzer Prize winner, and a professor of creative writing at the University of Virginia. We'll have more with Rita Dove after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rita Dove about her new book of poetry, Playlist for the Apocalypse. Dove is a professor of creative writing at the University of Virginia. Her other books include American Smooth, On the Bus with Rosa Parks, and the Pulitzer Prize winning Thomas and Beulah. And you can join the conversation. What would you like to ask Rita Dove? Is there a poem of hers, past or present, or that you just heard that you would like to comment on? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. As we mentioned earlier, this is your first book of poems in 12 years. What's it been like um, to put this book out there into the world after this much time? It's interesting because I, I feel like a, a brand new baby who's been kind of set out. Uh, it feels uh, raw and exciting, mm. but, you know, but actually really, really good to do so. I spent quite a lot of time trying to um, hear myself again, if that makes sense, to not to have others' opinions or judgments or comments upon uh, my my work get in the way of the work at hand. And so 
that's part of the reason why it's taken this long to get this book together. Uh, but the, it feels really good to have it here. The other part of the reason that you acknowledged publicly in this book is that you have had a form of multiple sclerosis um, for, and that you have been sort of dealing with it for actually about 20 years or so at this point? Yes, that's true. Um, I have had, it came on suddenly and um, it, um, this multiple sclerosis, I, luckily at the moment now I'm, I'm in remission. I'm on, it's, under control, knock on wood, I've been managing it. But part of the reason why I did not want to reveal it to the world was because I was grappling with what it felt like to be able to move through life. How could I move through life anew? I could not, um, I had to learn how to write again, um, physically learn how to write because part of the uh, neuropathy that I incurred meant that I was numb in my finger, in my extremities, in my fingers and toes. And I discovered that if I wrote by hand, I could, that I would start, my fingers would jerk. I couldn't control that. And that's the way I always started out composing my poems. So I had to relearn how to um, get the thoughts out of my head and onto the page um, without constantly being, you know, stymied by this, 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 this reaction. Uh, and that took quite a few years. And in that time, I did not feel like I could uh, step out into the public and, and fight that battle on the public field. Also, my parents were aging, they were dealing with uh, severe health problems of their own. And I didn't want to add to that because I knew that they would worry more than they could help at that point. I read that you also used dance to help regain balance. Yes, I did. Um, we, uh, my husband and I are, we love to ballroom dance and to do Argentine tango more mm. recently. And uh, I, I really had lost my balance because of the feeling in my toes, but dance helped me discover a new kind of pressure on the floor. So not to feel the floor, but to, but I could sense the weight and uh, that breaking it down that way, you know, sitting there saying, okay, you've got a ball of a foot, you have the instep, here's the heel, this is what that pressure feels like, truly helped me uh, learn how to walk without bumping into things and stumbling. How did you put this collection together? Because it also sounds like that was a very physical process for you. Yes, yes. I, um, well, first of all, the poems stretch over those, those last 12 years or yes. so. And even beyond that, I had written poems about my MS right at the very beginning, all the way through. So these poems spanned a great number of years and, and they had lived with me for a long time, some of them, some of them are more recent. When I wanted, to, when I knew that it was time to put them out into the world, and I can't explain why I knew, but I thought it was time. I actually uh, printed them out, put them on the floor and let them congregate in their groups. I walked among them. Uh, and said, who wants to go over here? <laughs> you know, I kind of talked to him. Nobody can come into the room when I'm doing this. I look like a mad woman. Uh, 
but I'm so happy when I'm doing it. And, and basically they, they would let me know. I mean, I'd put several poems together. Some of them I knew, of course, they were projects or things that I had worked on uh, that belonged together, but there were others who were, uh, you know, who said, no, I don't belong over here. I need to come here. So yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I loved is you you talked about some of these poems that you had written before, Making Sense Now. And one of the things that I feel like really carries throughout the book is this sense of, um, and it's a lot of the words that you've described, is this sense of rebirth into a new future, for example, the sense of unexpected things happening in sort of quiet places or, you know, to us in sort of our innocent lives and the way that we're going about things. And especially now related to the pandemic and just mm -hmm. the incredible shock and uh, tumult that that has brought into all of our lives. It does definitely feel like so much of, of your poem is about, um, is about grappling with those moments. You have a poem in there titled, This is the Poem I Did Not Write, which makes me, again, just think about, you know, things we, that are sort of thrust upon us and forced upon us and we have no choice but but to to live through it. And I, I wonder if that, it was behind sort of that short but, but emotional um, poem that you wrote. Yes, it was uh, part of the thrust, the idea, because when the pandemic uh, hit us all, um, we were all sometimes suddenly toppled out of the, the rote of our lives, but even the pattern of our lives, which is a more, I guess, we love yes. the pattern more than we love the rote. Um, but suddenly, you know, opportunities open, but also really terrifying moments of the void. Um, and so this, I'll read that poem for you because it's short. This is the poem I did not write while sorting mail, responding to posts, chasing a dream I can't quite remember, remembering things I never dreamed could happen, putting on rice, the laundry, all the times it was time for pills or injections, mounting the elliptical, Stairs up, stairs down. One martini late in the day. Writing other poems, less impatient ones, better behaved. We're talking with Rita Dove. Her new book is Playlist for the Apocalypse. She's former U.S. Poet Laureate, professor of creative writing at the University of Virginia. And if you have any comments, you can post them at Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email them to forum at kqed.org. And as always, you can call us if there's something you want to ask or if there's a poem you'd like to talk about with Rita Dove, 866-733-6786. So Ariana writes, what do you think of the U.S. having youth poet laureates now? not to mention the last two young women of color from California. And actually, Rita Dove, I, I recently interviewed the, the U.S. Youth Poet Laureate, Alexandra Huynh, who succeeded Amanda Gorman. And so, yeah, I'm curious, what do you think of um, the fact that we have youth poet laureates now? I think it's fantastic. I think you, the more the merrier. And also because it not only... Uh, establishes, I think, a bridge between uh, poetry and 
youth who are going to listen to their generation, of course, more uh, than they are their the older generations. <laughs> but it also, I mean, I think it gives um, young poets um, that imprimatur, I guess you could say, your words, your stories, your poems, the lives you leave are important to us, important enough that we have a poet laureate that represents you. So I'm all for it. I think it's fantastic. Do you think it puts a pressure in just in terms of the role, especially in these times? Or is there any advice that you would give in terms of carrying that title? Wow. Yes, it does put a pressure on them. And all, all I can say is to, first of all, keep reading, read everything you can, uh, poetry, prose, I mean, to, to remind yourself of the family that you are in and how large it is, how various, mm-hmm. um, so that when, because it is difficult when eyes are on you, when pressure is on you, um, and to, I think that a, a young person or well, anyone actually can become very self-conscious. And to become self-conscious means that you're not open and listening to the world around you. I know Shelley, um, the romantic poet Shelley had once said uh, that the poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the race. And I think by that he meant that a poet gathers the temper of the times, right? The voices and the, the all of the emotions of the times and puts it into words to do that you have to listen, you have to be open. And if you're self-conscious, you can't hear. So the, I would, that's why I say reading, reading, reading to hear all the other voices, the ones who say, hey, welcome, here you are. Come on in, sit down, uh, join the family. That will help them through. Yes, and these times, I mean, there is just so much to sort of really tap into and listen into. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was your choice of the word playlist for the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think of when I think playlist is I think music. Um, and it hadn't really occurred to me that a playlist could be a playlist of anything in some ways. Do you, were you thinking about music in that way? Or were you thinking about poems, poems as a playlist, as an accompaniment, but also, um, a companion, you know, mm-hmm. in all of this. Well, I I was thinking of it as uh, poems, as a as a as companions, things that you would play as you uh, in your head or hear in your head as you went through the day, as and, and through these these amazing times. But I'm also a musician. I've played the cello and they sing. Um, so I I'm always thinking of music. Uh, and in fact, whenever I do give, when I used to give poetry readings in person, I would refer privately to my list of poems that I was going to read as a playlist. Because to me, it, it is a way of, a playlist also leads you, kind of guides you through your emotional trajectory, right? I mean, it, a playlist is not all sad songs, you know, but it goes sad, it lifts you up, it, it kind of guides you that way. And um, so for me, both of those things mean something. Well, I'm wondering if I could get you to read one more uh, 
poem for us. And this sure. is one of my favorites in your whole collection. It's called Soup. <laughs> and uh, do you want to say anything about Soup? Uh, well, Soup is a poem that um, happened actually very early uh, in my uh, journey with MS. And it's about uh, what we turn to for succor when, when we are distressed. Uh, and uh, soup really hits the, you know, really hits that nail on the head for me every time. Soup. When the doctor said, I've got good news and bad news, I thought of soup, how long it had been since I had had the homemade kind. The real deal where you soak the beans overnight and everything is apportioned in stages. First the onions and meat browned in oil, then the broth added for hours of simmering, all that saturated glistening scent stoking the house with memories. The Jewish boy I kissed until we both sank to our knees in the grass. My mother's frown as she plucked weeds from my hair. Oh, my mother will die from this. My mother whose soup is the best, even though it was always oversalted because it was labored over. It was ladled out unconditionally, tendered sweetly without consequences, a non-judicial love. And it was always soup I got first thing in the sick bed. And there's the way tomatoes are added at the last moment, but the minor vegetables peas and corn and tiny diced potatoes come in 30 minutes before that. And how the spices, ah, the spices are to be doled out sparingly, then waiting to see how strong they'd become in the brew, their hidden aptitudes unlocked only by time and the heat of a burbling melange. In the way my apron always got stained but I wouldn't wash it, proud of the mess for once, making mistakes, sloshing and dripping. Yes, soup was what I wanted, not news, but the slow courage of the lentil as it softened, its heart splitting into wings. Not good cop, bad cop, but the swift metallic smack of too much time administered hastily, the kind of mistake you never make again. Bread, too. I wanted the whole thick, crusty hump of it laid out for vivisection. Here is my body. Eat. And lots of red wine that always feels like it's greasing my bones with lava. Here is my blood. And then the bad news came. Who ever listens to the good? And before I answered, before the questions and the arched eyebrow of my husband standing in the doorway could fall into pity and helplessness, I thought, yes, I'll make soup tonight, a soup fit for the gods. Rita Dev, um, when I think about this poem, I think about all the different pieces of ourselves and our lives and 
all the melding and reshaping that has happened right now with all these new ingredients that we didn't even anticipate would be part of it. Absolutely. We are making one, one hell of a soup right now. (laughs) One hell of a soup. I do have one last listener question here that I I should put to you. Uh, This listener writes, I remember being forced to memorize poems as a kid. I hated it then, but I'm so grateful now because I still remember them, including four or five of Shakespeare's sonnets did you memorize poems as a child? Ah, I wish we all memorized poems again, even though I too was filled with dread when I was uh, forced to memorize poems. And I did, uh, I think around 10 years old was when they started trying to push poems on us. And then later on, they stopped, you know, but I love the fact that I carry those poems with me now. You know, so it, it, they, they are there always, you know, even if I don't have a book around, I can, I can do that. I remember once had a a wonderful moment when I was waiting with another poet to read and it was in um, Chile, in the country of Chile, and we didn't have a language to share, uh, to be able to converse uh, really well. So what we did was to trade verses of the Raven uh, back and forth because that was one English poem that he knew and it was just great. <laughs> that That's so great in terms of the connection. And then I'm always surprised at, at what poems will spring to my lips in any given moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rita Deva, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've had a ball. Rita Dove. Her new book of poetry is Playlist for the Apocalypse. You have to definitely check it out. She's also, of course, former U.S. Poet Laureate, Pulitzer Prize winner. Her previous books are American Smooth, On the Bus with Rosa Parks, and the Pulitzer Prize winning Thomas and Beulah, a creative writing professor at the University of Virginia, Rita Dove. And thanks to Ariana Prail for producing this segment. We have one more where we'll be checking in on the recall, so stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.